Our chapter for today is 1 Peter chapter 3. In this chapter, Peter is still encouraging them to persevere through their suffering and hardship as Christians, and he's instructing them how to conduct their lives in the meantime as believers and followers of Christ. So let's take a look at some of what we find here. Interestingly enough, Peter begins the chapter with a section on relationships between wives and husbands, and it may seem to be a random topic in a letter meant to encourage discouraged and persecuted believers, but in truth, Peter is instructing them in the most basic relationships of their lives that will impact every area of their lives and bear witness to Christ at all times in their lives. What Peter says in these verses is often misunderstood and even controversial in, in our current culture. Consider what Paul says in the very first verse, commanding wives to, uh, in verse 1, to be subject to your own husbands. That's an idea foreign and even repugnant to many in our culture, but one which the Holy Spirit through Peter says is an essential characteristic of a Christ-like marriage, seeing that marriage itself is to be a picture of Christ in the church, according to Ephesians 5.32. And indeed, the idea of submitting to one's husband is a, is a near uh, nonsensical notion when it is considered without any reference to Jesus Christ and the Christian's new life and identity in him. For example, how repugnant does one find it when reading Jesus say, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, John 4.34, or, or John 5.30, I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me, or John 8.29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So submission is not itself a repugnant thing, or else one is forced to declare that every moment of Jesus' life was repugnant as he, at every moment, voluntarily submitted to the will of God the Father. So it is nothing but Christ-like for a wife to submit willfully and gladly to her own husband in the marriage relationship. Um, what is often missing also, though, in, in the discussion on this matter, though, is the clear instructions and commands also given to husbands. <laughs> To here in verse 7, husbands are to live with your wives, with your wife, in an understanding way, showing honor to her. Too many husbands, Christian husbands, myself included, fall so very short of the standard set there. No husband um, who refuses to live with his wife in an understanding way and who refuses to honor her should expect her to gladly and willfully submit to his leadership. But what these commands do, the command to the husband to honor his wife and provide humble and loving leadership to her and, and her command to gladly submit and humbly submit to that leadership, is what it does is it helps each one to die to themselves and, and their naturally sinful and self-centered inclinations every day to become more and more like Christ. The marriage relationship is the crucible in which genuine Christian humility and sacrifice is forged, which, which is then enabled uh, to be put on display in every other area of life to the glory of Christ. Well, secondly, there's a phrase I've often found interesting around halfway through the chapter. One of the most well-known verses in the chapter is verse 15, where Peter says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Often our focus is on that last phrase, being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you, and rightly so. Um, it's a, it is vital that we train ourselves to have the ability to, to defend the faith at any given moment in any given situation. But the phrase that I've often found interesting is the, is the phrase that grounds the exhortation 
to be prepared to make a defense in the first part of the verse. The English Standard Version, which is the the translation I use, it translates it, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Um, I would translate the Greek there more in line with what the New International Version says. The NIV says, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. The word holy carries with it two distinct ideas, purity, first of all, and secondly, separation or being set apart from other things. I don't believe that this verse is saying, in your minds, think about how pure Jesus is as Lord, but rather, in your minds, think about how you have set apart Jesus and Jesus alone as Lord over your life. Acknowledging and submitting to Jesus as Lord of your life is not a one-time decision made at the beginning of the Christian life, but a daily decision made every moment of the Christian life. And it's when we moment by moment remind ourselves and cherish in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and, and is sovereign over us that we realize the priority placed on our lives to be prepared to make a defense for, the, for, for, for Christ anywhere at any time. Well, finally, perhaps the most confusing and controversial passage in this chapter is the passage about baptism near the end of the chapter. Most specifically, Peter says in verse 21, quote, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, some denominations, such as the Church of Christ, take this to mean that one is not saved until one is baptized. Is that what this verse means? Is it really saying that a person must believe in Jesus and be baptized in order to be saved, with salvation not being fully conferred on a person until that baptism has taken place? I do not believe so for the following reasons. First, that interpretation fails to take into account what baptism actually is and is meant to symbolize. Baptism is a covenant sign. It is like, in some ways, circumcision to the, in the Old Testament, the sign and symbol of the covenant blessings in Jesus Christ. It is a symbol of one's, be, uh, one's sins being washed away. It is a symbol of being born again in Christ. One in the New Testament was never saved because of circumcision, nor is one in the New Covenant saved because of baptism. Both were simply symbols of that thing that really does save, namely, the work and accomplishments of Jesus. Secondly, that interpretation fails to recognize that this is precisely what Peter has in mind when he says baptism now saves. He's using the covenant sign, that is, baptism, as a shorthand way of referring to the covenant itself and all the blessings that it contains. How do we know that? Because he specifically says two things. For one thing, he says in verse 20, baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? He's just been talking about Noah and the flood and how Noah and his family were saved and, as he says there, were brought safely through the water. The water there symbolized the judgment of God, and corresponding to that, Peter says, is baptism. Going through the waters of baptism and then coming out of them symbolizes that we have escaped the judgment of God through Jesus, just like Noah and his family escaped the judgment waters of God through the ark. It has nothing to do with the water. It has everything to do with Jesus and, what, and the symbol that points to Jesus. For another thing, Peter specifically says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, as if to scream, I'm not talking about the water. <laughs> um, he's talking about what the water symbolizes, and it symbolizes Jesus 
and the salvation from judgment he's brought to us. Baptism now saves is just another way of saying that. Just a couple of thoughts from 1 Peter chapter 3.